Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Red Salute, welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. On this episode, I have my interview with Jamu Fuad Paul. We talk a lot about COVID-19, we talk about his latest book, Demarcation and Demystification, and we talk a little bit about his upcoming book as well. As always, JMP provided some really great insights, and to be frank, it's just nice to pick his brain about any topic at all, so just a pleasure to have him back. If you want to buy his latest book, Demarcation and Demystification, Philosophy and Its Limits, I do have a link in the show notes. I would highly recommend doing so if you have the funds to do so. If you want to talk to me, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. And if you want to support my show, which is completely unnecessary, but of course greatly appreciated, you can do so at Anchor.fm. Just look for my show, Manifesting Podcast, and hit the support button. All right, let's get to the interview. I'd like to welcome back J. Mufuad Paul to the show. JMP is a professor of philosophy at York University and the author of five books, his latest of which is titled Demarcation and Demystification, Philosophy and Its Limits, which you can buy by following the link in the show notes. You can also check out his writing at his blog, MLM Mayhem. JMP, thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast. That's great to be here. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't start with COVID-19. You recently published an article on your blog, MLM Mayhem, and the PCRRCP also published an article concerning the spread of the virus. The response or lack thereof that we've seen from governments, especially in the U.S., I feel points to the inherent failures of an economic system like capitalism. You quoted Lenin in your piece about how crisis sweeps away the political litter and reveals the mainsprings of class struggle. What potential positive outcomes do you see stemming from the pandemic? Uh, yeah, well, I think it... Maybe at this point, it's hard to clearly see the nature of positive outcomes um, because so much is up in the air. And of course, we're dealing with, you know, the pandemic is experienced differently in different social contexts. Also, you know, when I when I quoted Lenin, I, I did point out <clears throat> that in many of these contexts, particularly in like, you know, imperialist countries, uh, what we call like kind of the, the subjective factor is quite weak and will not be able to turn the crisis of capitalism into a crisis for capitalism in the sense that Lenin meant. I mean, you can I can riff off Lenin again, you know, the, the objective circumstances are ripe, but the subjective circumstances lag behind. Um, so, you know, in, in, in like, I guess, again, mainly the imperialist uh, countries like the US and uh, Canada and places like it, there don't seem to be revolutionary parties that are capable of transforming the, this crisis into a revolutionary situation. I mean, to be clear, things I, I think are different in other places, like, say, the Philippines and India, you have like the NPA and the PLGA. They're, they're capable of doing mass work and mobilizing in this time, exposing the state and fusing their work to people's wars. But I mean, so that, that's all to kind of just say that it's hard to see what, you know, kind of positive and definitely when we're, we're talking about positive outcomes um, in some places, <laughs> they're going to be very different than other places. But I think even here, 
that there are positive gains that can be made um, for those organizations who are capable of mobilizing safely, uh, participation and serve the people initiatives and rent strikes can win people over. And if organizations are prepared to seize hold of the post-pandemic reality, they can turn the fact that capitalism has been exposed as incapable of dealing with the pandemic without making the most exploited and oppressed sectors of the masses take on the lion's share of poverty, sickness, and death. Like the fact that landlords get compensated while poor workers get evicted, or that large corporations and banks get bailouts while the present, uh, <laughs> excuse me, sorry, while the oppressed masses are left to starve is a negative reality that can be turned into a positive gain for a revolutionary movement in the area of recruitment. Uh, but you know, this is all is really dependent if, if there are plans around it, and we don't simply sit around broadcasting how bad capitalism is online, but like, you know, figure out ways to work to demonstrate, especially, uh, you know, in the new rounds of austerity measures that are surely going to follow this, how we are a better alternative. We have a situation where the potential cure is being worked on by just a handful of corporations, which clearly points to the vicious nature of monopoly capitalism and a for-profit healthcare system. Can you discuss this issue? Well, I mean, it's pretty much how these corporations function all the time, right? I mean, it's, it reveals it in a kind of like, I guess, harsh way or just shows how gross they are uh, to people that never really thought about it before. But, you know, they're this gross all the time, right? Because if you think, I, I, and I mentioned this in the article as well, right, that these are corporations that, you know, own the, you know, you don't own the vaccinations uh, for, you know, for other diseases, right? So the diseases that do have vaccinations for them, and there's a lot of people dying from these illness, illnesses, especially in like kind of the global peripheries who aren't given these vaccinations because they're not distributing them for free. So I guess, you know, in that context, uh, the race for the cure is a race for what biomedical corporation can have the monopoly on the cure, profit from the pandemic, and allow some people to live and others to die. Right. Um, and also, you know, there was that Mike Davis article that came out uh, around the beginning of the pandemic where he pointed out. And I know others pointed it out as well, but I remember reading it first in in the Davis article that the nature of capitalism is such that had any of these corporations pursued vaccine research following the SARS epidemic, they would have they would have been able to uh, have one ready for COVID-19 quite quickly. But they shelved that research when SARS passed because it was unprofitable. And this, again, also kind of demonstrates the ways in which capitalism, despite all the, you know, the you know, free market dogmatists claiming that, like, oh, the capitalism is all about progress. And that's what you know, the competition is what, you know, makes makes scientific ideas go forward. It, it's just more evidence that capitalism holds back scientific progress as much as it likes to pretend otherwise, because you know, in most cases, in so many cases, pursuing scientific progress is largely unprofitable. Um, I guess until like a state of emergency like this one manifests, suddenly it's going to be profitable, right? The, the person that gets it is going to be able to make, you know, billions off of it. But by then, um, it's right. by then it's too late for so many people. Right? So I mean, it kind of reveals too, like a socialist approach to medicine as with a socialist approach to quarantine is going to look much different. Um, Finally, also, you know, it's it's you know, I think it's logical to expect that if and when a vaccine is created, it's going to be withheld again from the most impoverished and marginalized populations of the world, just as others, as I mentioned, have been. And uh, while large amounts of people in the imperialist metropoles will be vaccinated, many, many other people are going to be abandoned to future COVID epi epidemics. You mentioned in your article the Canadian government's handling of the H1N1 virus or swine flu and how they, instead of delivering needed supplies to First Nations people, they delivered body bags. What has the response by the Canadian government looked like this time around? Well, I mean, 
the government's response hasn't been as obviously callous as the conservative government when, you know, the government that sent the body bags to the indigenous reserves. I mean, for those American listeners or non-Canadian listeners who don't know much about the political reality up here, um, we now have the, the Liberal Party in power as opposed to the Conservative Party. I mean, it's, the you know, Paul, you can say the Liberal Party is kind of like the Democratic Party in some ways. Um in its, in its politics, uh, you know, that kind of liberal capitalist approach. Um, and and the conservatives would be kind of like the Republicans, only it's, it's always a bit different in different realities. I'm just trying to shape it for those that don't know about that. But um, but yeah, so this, this government hasn't been callous. And, and that's, that's usually just because liberals, liberals are always better with optics. The liberal party is at least, like they're really good at like making themselves look sure. better. And it's amazing how much love love they're getting um when when you really look into what they're doing it's it's not a it's not as big as it seems right like you get like trudeau uh the you know the the prime minister he appears on his door doorstep like he went in he went into social isolation early um and uh you know and he's really trying to do a good job and <laughs> and you know he's he's all that everyone socially isolate yourself so he'll do these like state like at least once a week if not two times he does like an address uh, where he's, you know, from from his doorstep with people being really distant from him. <laughs> and he's always morally pleading for Canadians to care for each other. So, like, and then he also, he's good at talking, like, talking like the like this good game about what the government is doing to help people. So he, he makes all these promises about extended unemployment benefits, rent deferrals, and emergency funds for the unemployed. And it all sounds rather convincing. And there are some unemployment ben benefits. There are some rent deferrals. There are some emergency funds. But when you start looking at it, um, it's, it doesn't look as rosy as like Trudeau hypes it up to be, right? Because, you know, the, these, the federal me measures that are being put through, I, I mean, arguably they're better than what the U.S. is doing because, you know, Canada is like more of a welfare capitalist state, but it's still subjected to the same imperialist and, and settler capitalist logic as the government that sent body bags to indigenous reserves, right? So it's the same thing. You get this situation where more money is, is, is being dedicated to subsidizing corporations, banks, and landlords than those who actually need it, like the people that are facing a pretty brutal reality under the state of emergency. Uh, more power has been allocated to the police, right? And also to the military. So let me, there's, there's a news, uh, I think, uh, like this morning about how they were moving hundreds of like soldiers in, into Toronto to, to quote, help with the epidemic, unquote, right? Um, and, uh, it, and you get this, some, some so-called leftists up here spend more time shaming people who aren't socially isolating and castigating the state. Some even like put up these things, imagining the state is, is trying to become benevolent at this time, uh, rather than seeing that the crisis created by capitalism that capitalism is also taking advantage of. Uh, and also you get you border closures, uh, that uh, you know, when the border closures that happen, they put it on this logic of the quarantine. But the first people targeted in, in the border closures were, were refugees and immigrants in the most marginalized kind of population, where, where you know, the um, the, <laughs> the the there was the Americans at the beginning. They closed the border to everywhere else in the world and sent refugees back, but. Our, our biggest importer of, of COVID-19 was the U.S. at that time, and U.S. citizens at that time were allowed to come in and out freely. So it's all just, you know, I mean, now they've closed it off too, but still the economy moves freely, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and the, there's also recent research that came out yesterday that, or maybe it was two days ago, I can't remember, uh, that at least a third of workers rendered unemployed in this crisis 
will not be able to survive with the promised welfare measures. And that was actually a conservative projection, saying a third. So this whole claim that everyone's going to be okay and everyone wants, you know, it's going to get the money, like an actual, you know, uh, empirical research shows that this is not going to be the case. Um, and also there's the fact that Indigenous nations, again, will have a harder time dealing with the pandemic due to the lack of medical infrastructure that these, you know, reserves possess due to their existence as oppressed nations. Uh, and, you know, in some ways you find some kind of really interesting kind of in, interesting, not in a good way, but in a bad way, kind of return of old settler fantasies. Like, so there was, there was this case in, um, you know, in Canada about one week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, where a couple from Quebec sold all, all of their possessions. They drove across Canada and they flew into the Gwich'in Island community of Old Crow, and that was an indigenous community, right? Because they imagined that they could live off the land and survive the pandemic, right? Um, so it was kind of like this, and they even had this idea they had a dream about it or something. And it was really like white religious, like God sent them a dream, just like, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, it's kind of like, like they were settlers of, of old leaving Europe to make a better life in the colonies without caring about the indigenous population that was there. And, and, and just by doing that, after driving through all of Canada and everything, they totally put this population at risk because this population does not have a very good medical infrastructure, right? It's like it's like they were living in smallpox blankets that arrived. And, you know, thankfully they were, they, they were sent back, right? Um, but then um, hopefully no damage was done. But, you know, this kind of thinking of living off the land and escaping from the plague has made a return, right? And, and, and it connects to old settler fantasies. I mean, these kind of things come up, all these old ideologies seem to return in crisis as well. And yeah, that was a bit of a tangent. Um, and I'm not going to say much more here because I think, you know, a lot of this is riffing off. You mentioned the, the PCR RCP analysis of the pandemic. And I think it does a better job of looking at the ways in which the Canadian settler capitalist state has been dealing with COVID-19 than I can say right here. You brought up a really interesting point in your article about the virus and its relation to gender. TERFs use this opportunity to tout about the importance of biological sex because of course they did, uh, specifically in Italy. I haven't seen this point brought up elsewhere, so if you could just please explain your views on the subject. Well, to be fair, I shouldn't have said to be fair. I have a, I have a friend who always mocks me when I, apparently it's a, it's a term I use a lot, to be fair. And I always, every time I use it on any kind of like chat thing, she'll send me like a, a gif of, from, from this, this comedy show with everyone going around repeating to be fair over and over. So I'm going to get trolled by that <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> if she listens to this, I'll, I'll know if she listened to it for that reason. Uh, anyhow, to be fair, <laughs> when I wrote that article, I had just read um, some dumb Twitter string where people were mocking the turfs uh, for the silliness. Um, but you know, I couldn't. I couldn't find. I was looking for. I couldn't again. I couldn't find the link to it when I was, when I wrote that article. It's kind of this, you know, this ephemeral stuff you find on Twitter that scrolls past in the days. You just see it, and there's so much of this reactionary shit that people are responding to. So you know, it, maybe my point there was, you know connected to something that became rather ephemeral uh you know and chances are the one or two turf trolls making this point deleted their strings because the responses made them look stupid right so it's like my point was largely redundant um but you know the point i was making in that was that you know in italy and this was this had to do with when, when statistics were sent out of the early, early death toll in italy so this was about a month ago now i think uh in italy the death toll revealed uh that among people who were over 60 fatalities were largely male rather than female and so the kind of the 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 turf shit that came out of here was that 
some of these like transphobes, they, they tried to use uh, these statistics to say that this was evidence that gender was a biological fact, right? It was almost like, oh, see, it's some, some truth, right? But I mean, if you really look at it, my point was is that it's actually more proof of, uh, you know, the social construction of gender and sex, not like some biology. Because when you look at that generation, not just in Italy, but in so many places of the world, right? You have a generation where men were breadwinners and women were homemakers, right? That's the way the family, the nuclear family, or whatever you want to call it, was constructed, right? Um, and there's this whole notion of masculinity that once men retired, they would largely do nothing while their wives continue to do the housework, right? That's like, that's largely my parents' generation. My parents are thankfully not like that. I don't want to trash them. They actually had really good gender politics, but so many people in that generation had that. And then my grandparents' generation, that was totally the way it was, right? Um, and so, you know, living, so these, these men, when they retire, they would live lives without exercise and labor. And as well, especially in Europe, there was like the large convention of smoking, even more when you're not exercising, it's, it's even worse, right? Especially in an epidemic that has to do with like lung capacity. Um, so it meant that in that context, uh, men would be less healthy than women who were caring for these men. And those men were living sedentary lives, right? And so again, the, the whole point was that, that just speaks more to a construction of gender norms rather than biological reality. So fatalities were thus higher in men 16 and above because of the gender norms of the generation rather than some sacred fact of biological sex. I think that was the point I was making. Another point you touch on is the fact that, and it's really the overarching theme of your piece, is that capitalism and its absolute disregard for preventing completely preventable diseases is the real plague. I mean, obviously now, I mean, it's not, um, you know, a point. I've, I've seen this now, um, you know, repeated. I mean, it's probably written before I wrote it. I'm not gonna, I'm not, this is not something I came up with too. Probably like about like 100 different like leftist think pieces on COVID-19 all said something similar. Capitalism is the plague or I've seen capitalism is the virus and things like that. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, obviously it's the case, right? Um, that, you know, capitalism is, is the real problem is the plague because, you know, such, such pandemics, you know, wouldn't be as devastating or shut down entire societies if they were experienced in, you know, uh, post-capitalist context, specifically socialist context, right? Is what I mean here. And I already made that point a bit earlier. So if you remove capitalism from the equation, um, when such natural disasters are, are encountered, they're going to be encountered in more humane ways. And, uh, you know, so capitalism, you know, in some sense, it's, it is a disease on human existence, right? It's become entirely necrotic. I mean, there's this discussion, you're using the term necro-capitalism now just to talk about, you know, capitalism in its, in its most, you know, in its, its imperialist worst state as everything is coming apart, right? And there's nothing, I mean, it's always been like that too, but I'm just talking about that's a term that's being used. And there's nothing in its logic that, that is beneficial for human existence. So even when capitalist states try to save their populations, they, they do so because they want to persist as capitalists. Right. It's not like there's people who have illusions that, um, you know, that the Canadian state, uh, I can't imagine anyone having this illusion about the U.S. state, but I'm sure some people do. But up here, people having like this, these illusions that the, that the Canadian state is going to adopt more socialist and, and, and humane approaches to to running things right after, you know, after this pandemic are, are pretty much delusional. Right. I mean, what we're going to see again is larger austerity. Um, processes that have already begun and you know and what what capitalism does or capitalist states do in these kind of situations of crisis is yeah they want to save people to a certain extent because they need well they want you know the 
the people at the top want to live. <laughs> the bourgeoisie wants to live. They don't want to die. And also they, they want workers to do all their work from the, them afterwards, right? But what they're going to do is they're just going to attempt to rig the game so they can profit from disease, right? You can see larger, like larger security measures that just stay in place. Um, again, the austerity rounds, different entire job sectors eliminated. Um, you know, this a movement towards monopoly in some sectors, right? Um, so, it, yeah, all you, you know all this, right? I mean, I guess just the metaphor is that, you know, capitalism, you know, since its inception has presided over massive graveyards. It's the worst anti-people virus the world has known. We'll do one more question on COVID here. I know you're a father to a seven-year-old child. How do you explain something like a pandemic to your daughter? Have you used this as an opportunity to expose the failures of our current society, or how do you go about approaching that issue? It's it's always difficult to talk with a seven-year-old about these things. But, you know, for like most things in her life, we, we still try to talk with her about them and, and do our best to put them in terms she understands. Um, so, you know, and generally, I always talk to my doctor about the uh, doctor, my daughter, about the failure of the pandemic logic is in my mind. I'm thinking like medical. I, you, know, I, you know, I always talk to my daughter about the failures of society, like our current society, the problems of capitalism. I try to explain them to her. Right. And she always wants to talk about capitalism and communism. <laughs> she knows these terms that I use a lot. And she likes telling her her school friends and teachers that her dad is a communist um and i'm sure they just think i you know it depends on what teachers they are <laughs> that are hearing about this right um, she always wants to talk right. about it as best as she can i uh, think like, you know my my wife and i have, have, have made this dialogue about just social things kind of a part of her life right but i think in this situation it's a bit different um we're trying to be careful about how we talk to her about it because there's just so much like panic inducing stuff about this so it, like she's very aware right now that things are different since she's experiencing this complete break with her normal routine. Like she's not at school. She can't see her friends. She's stuck with us 24 seven. And this has created a, like a large level of anxiety in it for her. Like she's finding it difficult to sleep at night. She's more clingy. She sometimes breaks down in tears in the evening. So, you know, talking about it in, you know, more details, uh, we just kind of just don't want to make her more anxious. It's already kind of like trying just to give her this kind of non-anxiety non as best as possible. Um, and, you know, I think a large part of being a good parent is, is sheltering kids from the violence of everyday society. Um, you know, bad parents are people that don't shelter them from that or, you know, are part of the violence of everyday society and, you know, place that on their kids, right? So we, we, we trying to like have a home where she's kind of sheltered from it because we have the means to do so. Um, and, you know, while not rendering them ignorant, right? So like, so I don't want to render her ignorant of uh, what's going on. Um, and this is kind of what we're trying to do. So it's getting a little bit complex in this pandemic because, you know, she's hearing about it and things like that when she has uh, Skype playdates with her friends, but, um, and, and, the, and her friend's parents are trying to shelter as well, but kids pick, pick up things no matter what, right? Transitioning to your latest book, Demarcation and Demystification, Clarity is an overarching theme in much of your work. How do you strike the balance between making your work accessible while also working against the strain of anti-intellectualism we see from some on the left, specifically when dealing with a more complex or opaque issue like philosophy? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, it suddenly feels kind of funny to transition in this and try and talk about a global pandemic to, to a book of philosophy about philosophy. <laughs> Yeah, I struggled with the segue, obviously. Right? <laughs> if it had been something like the austerity apparatus, which I think we talked about last time you had me on, 
I mean, yeah, then, then I could easily yes, update that to deal with this, but, but whatever, I, I definitely want people to read this book. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's my most recent, um, and I like talking about the issues. Uh, so, you know, okay. The, the question of clarity, I think is an important one, right? Um, and the problem of clarity or like making my stuff accessible is something I'm always trying to take into account. And it is difficult to strike this balance between accessibility and philosophical investigation. You know, and so, I mean, I write it, I write at different levels, right? There's different, like, you know, I write different genres, you can say, of things. Um, but sometimes things have to be more complex when I'm addressing more complex problems. And, you know, I, I generally work from the principle that if you don't try to be obscurantist, if you don't try to be like work, write this like, you know, opaque pose, prose that sounds really cool, um, then it will largely be more accessible. And, you know, at the same time, I recognize that people don't have the time and experience to understand certain things I'm talking about. But, you know, this is okay, since even, you know, even non-academic Marxist terminology can be opaque to a lot of people as well. Um, and, you know, people that put on this kind of anti-intellectualism, yet rely on, like, referring to, like, terms straight out of capital, um, often can be like obscuring things to people as well without explaining them. And I'm not arguing we should get rid of that language. I think it's some of the most powerful, yeah. important language we have, but we have to be able to explain that too. And it also, I think gets to the idea that, you know, part of being like a, a Marxist and like kind of, you know, is to inspire studying amongst people and making things accessible to people that don't have the same level of literacy. Um, so, you know, it's, and, and that emphasizes what, you know, every, all of the great Marxist theorists and movements understood at the point is that it's important to study, uh, to learn things so as to engage with difficult pr problematics. And as long as authors are not assholes about how they conceptualize these problematics, uh, such difficulties of studying can be overcome. And, you know, at the same time, it's like you can't have every book repeat the same beginner's manuals. Otherwise you'll have these giant 1000 tomes before you get to the stuff you want to talk about. If you want to walk people through the basics over and over and over again. Uh, and different books make different assumptions regarding the reader's experience, just like different novels do, right? Or different movies or different you know television shows or anything like that. Um, but you know, the point is to be as clear as possible within the context that you have. On that topic of clarity, Devin Zayn Shah called demarcation and demystification, quote, a manifesto for philosophy, unquote, saying that the book effectively dispelled the notion that philosophy is inherently idealist. If you could explain that idea, the necessity of grounding philosophy, especially as a philosopher of Marxism. The fact that, you know, philosophy is largely idealist and that it seems, you know, at first when, when people, students first encounter it, divorced from material concerns. A lot of intro to philosophy classes you take, it's like they start talking to you about, you know, these these questions of, you know, Plato's forms, <laughs> you know, and then and then they get into questions about God and all these kinds of things, right? On that, and I mean, and these were the way that ancient philosophers were talking about things. But as, you know, Althusser has pointed out, he said, like, philosophy has no history. And there's always these kind of same problems get, you know, recycled over and over and over again. But I mean, Devin's comment about it being a manifesto for philosophy was probably extremely more kind than it should be. It was a very kind comment. Uh, it was quite <laughs> kind to the book because he realized, I, you know, I because he's, you know, he's, a, he's a careful reader, he realized what I was trying to do, and that was to ground philosophy in material concerns. I met my overall point behind this was that the advent of Marxism represented the most materialist break in philosophy. 
that it demanded a materialist reconfiguration of philosophy, even like more so than any of the kind of material, so-called materialist philosophies like of Aristotle or anything else. Those were all still marred by idealism, and that if, <clears throat> and that if, and that if you know philosophy missed this, right, uh, then philosophy would largely remain idealist, even if it claimed otherwise. And I think all philosophies that don't understand kind of this materialist break are, are largely marred by, by some form of idealism. Um, so to put it another way, the recognition that all philosophies to date are conditioned by class struggle, that they are all artifacts of the social historical situation in which they were born, this tells us something about the practice of philosophy and that a truly materialist practice of philosophy should learn to serve uh, class struggle instead of pretending that it is outside of politics. On that topic of necessity, your work always feels really timely and necessary. Why did you feel that the timing was right for demarcation and demystification? Well, maybe it doesn't seem that timely in terms of the COVID-19 virus right now, right. but uh, when it right. came out, uh, maybe. Uh, but I'm actually surprised even then that, that you found it timely and necessary. I'm, I'm glad and happy that you did. But um, to be honest, uh, at the time, I didn't think the timing was was right or anything like that. I didn't think it was right or wrong when I released the book. It was merely like I'd been working on it for years. It was on the roster, right? And I, I'd been working on it at the same time I was writing The Communist Necessity and Continuity and Rupture. I delayed it. Uh, I delayed it because of other projects. And finally, it was just the next thing. And I feel like I just got to get this done. Got to get it off my plate. But I am, again, I'm happy that you found it timely. But that's just an accident on my part. <laughs> You discuss at length in the book the potential misinterpretations of Marx's famous quote about philosophers just interpreting the world and the point, however, is to change it. If you can discuss some of the misinterpretations and really your own personal interpretation that you flesh out in the text. Okay, so, I mean, this ends up, you know, this comes very early in, in chapter one, right? Um, and I think the whole, the whole book is kind of con conditioned by propositions around this, this understanding of that very famous and extremely well quoted passage from the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, right? I mean, that 11th thesis on Feuerbach, um, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. It's been, you know, the rallying cry for a variety of diverse readings. And so I was kind of going through grouping this, just generalizing, what, what are the general, I mean, there are always like internal disagreements, but I, I found that you could find like, uh, I felt that there were, there were three general sets of readings. Um, outside of the one that I wanted to, you know, adopt and put forward that might not have, that, well, not mine, but it wasn't necessarily my own, but was inspired by other readings as well. But the three that I, you know, that I, that I first outlined was that, you know, this one set of readings sees the quote as saying that philosophy is idealist and must be abandoned for the science of historical materialism, right? So it's philosophies of only interpreted the world. And so then the point is to change. It means the point is to do do historical materialism, do science, right? Um, abandon philosophy to a certain extent. You know, another set of readings holds that it is a call for philosophy to properly interpret the world and that a new interpretation is needing so as to generate change, right? So that, you know, Marx is saying, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point for philosophy is to change it, right? Um, and then all of what Marx and Engels and everyone after them are doing is like a new philosophy, right? And, you know, I'll just say that, that I, I think that, that that one is, you know, one that I find idealist because um, if you understand this as coming from DC's on Feuerbach, which is a critique of Feuerbach and representing Marx's break with Feuerbach, 
Feuerbach's whole shtick was that you needed a new philosophy to change the world. And he wrote a whole piece called, the new, you know, something on, you know, the, towards a new philosophy and things like that. So this all, already seems something that if, if, this, if this whole section is a critique of Feuerbach, why would that be the interpretation of it? Right. But I always hear that one said a lot, especially in philosophy departments, because <laughs> philosophy departments want to change the world or want to pretend that they are changing the world. Right. And then the third set of readings holds that, you know, that statement philosophers, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it um, is about transforming philosophy into something that can change rather than interpret the world. Right. So it's like just almost like about transforming philosophy stuff, not about a new interpretation, but almost this merger and collection between, uh, you know, uh, transformation uh, and transforming the world and interpreting the world together. Right. So, you know, all of these readings, in my opinion, were partially correct. You know, the first reading makes the practice, you know, I already, I already trashed why one of them was bad. But I'm going to say they're all partially correct, too. Right. The, the first reading makes the practice of philosophy meaningless as something that should be abandoned. The second reading makes philosophy far too important, important, treating philosophical interpretation as the basis for thinking change. And the third simply conflates interpretation and change, obscuring what Marx was actually trying to say in regards to Feuerbach. So, you know, my, my intervention was to take something from all of these readings and also other readings that I thought were putting forward and also Marx and Engels themselves, they're putting forward this, this different approach to understanding that. Uh, so it was to take something from all these readings and argue what I feel is much more in line with the developing theory of Marxism and just a way to just think my philosophical practice. And that is the, the position I was putting forward is that philosophy can only interpret the world, right? So when you say philosophy, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. You know, the point here is to say, well, that's what's being said is philosophy can only interpret the world. And that this is not necessarily a bad thing in, it, in and of itself, but that its practice of interpretation is only meaningful if it accepts it cannot change the world and instead subordinates itself to world-changing revolutionary movements, right? To the science of making revolution. So once you see philosophy like that, um, it, it, it's neither useless nor overly important but a practice of thinking that becomes a tool for revolutionaries. Following up on the last question, you explained that capitalism would have already fallen apart under the weight of academic rigor if speculation alone were enough to get the job done. You discuss Adorno's idea that a return to speculation is required. Where's the lie, right? It's like, where's the lie? Right, yeah. so actually, you know, this is kind of a running joke, and I've, I've made versions of this joke in different classes. It's something that like all my students have heard versions of at, at different times. You know, it's, it's, so it's kind of a running joke I have about the way philosophers perceive themselves. And, you know, there's a funny, a funny story about this is like, so I write, I write my, I write my drafts of work on Scrivener. I don't know if you know what Scrivener is. Do you know Scrivener? Yeah. So it's, it's a non-linear yeah, word bit. processor, right? So you can pop in at different times and you, you build up a binder to do this kind of non-linear way. You can move parts around that kind of thing. It's, it's, I love it as a writing right. tool. The problem is you always need to do a linear edit because it encourages a certain level of redundancy because you forgot what you put in one part and you repeat it. So, so my partner, right, like my wife, she always does like kind of an initial read of my like initial like kind of edit of my work, just like, a, you know, and I, I do that for her work, too. We, we, we do this for each other. Right. But one of the things she noted uh, in, in terms of redundancies was that claim came up like over four times. <laughs> 
a version of that, right? <laughs> uh, so I guess it is it is one of my my pet peeves. And so thankfully, I, you know, I got rid of most of, the, <laughs> most of them in there because she's like, you already said this. Here it is again. Here it is again in different spots, right? So that was funny. Um, so yeah, I guess it's always on my mind as a pet peeve. But, you know, why it is is because I tend to have a pet peeve about academic philosophy and the way a lot of philosophers see themselves. Um, there's this arrogance, you know, that critical thinking itself will actually change the world. That logical debate is central to society's progress. And this really is like kind of the way that like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very liberal, classical liberal way of thinking. This is what you find in Mills on Liberty, right? The whole notion of, of uh, you know, a free, like an open, open society where there's debate on ideas and things like that is because he thinks debate and discussion drives society's progress, right? And the, the reality is, is that any honest assessment of history tells us differently than this story. It's, it's a total liberal affectation to believe that thinking and debate will change the world. And Marx and Engels found this philosoph philosophical conceit delusional. So, you know, obviously revolutionary movements need to generate and valorize philosophical practice because, you know, I always talk about thinking thought, right? This idea of thinking thought, it's important, right? But it is not critical thinking and debate that changes the world. It's you know, revolutionary movements. You use the analogy of a terrain as a way to conceptualize the problematic of philosophical practice. Can you explain your view on how we can use that metaphor to discuss fighting something like dogmatism, especially as a revolutionary communist? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Um, so, you know, maybe it's good to you know quote myself here. And so the analogy, right, Again, you go back, I mean, when I talk about the terrain, it's, again, it is an, it's important to say it's an analogy and a metaphor that I use to explain how theoretical development happens and how philosophy functions to demarcate and interpret theory. Um, but it's, as far as the question of, you know, uh, dogmatism goes, you know, I, uh, here's, a, you know, I guess a quote about that I wrote. I wrote, every scientific terrain produces its own variants and combinations of dogmatism and revisionism. There will be those who refuse to recognize developing provinces, new subterrains within their field because it calls all of their assumptions into question. There will be those who want to invent new provinces that contradict the overall terrain's boundaries. There will be those who desire to reprogram the entire terrain based on a mythical purity of its logic, and in doing so, refuse to recognize that a scientific terrain, by virtue of being scientific, is open to the future, a dogmatism that is also a revisionism because it rejects the logic of the train's exterior boundaries. Um, so, you know, I think, I think, first of all, to go back to that, I, I might not have been the most accurate way to frame things between dogmatism and revisionism, because I mean, dogmatism in itself is a kind of revisionism. Um, this just shows how long ago it was that I started working on this project, and I didn't fix things out based on other things I was writing. And, you know, I'm more clear about, uh, you know, this in a small book cut that I have coming out, well, I, that I did have coming out um, <laughs> around now, but it's, you know, because of the epidemic, it's probably, it's going to be held back. Um, and I talked about both dogmatism and eclecticism as, as forms of revisionism. And I kind of talk about it a bit in continuity and rupture like that. But anyhow, the, the whole point here is that dogmatic thinking can hold back theoretical development and philosophy um, no, sorry, can hold back theoretical development and, and philosophy in this regard should intervene to reveal this fact, right? You know, philosophy can intervene to reveal it. So you return to that metaphor that I kind of talked about in that quote and that you asked about, the metaphor of the train. 
Um, you can see dogmatism. Uh, dogmatism is almost this practice of treating a, a developing theoretical topography as isolated, kind of, you know, I guess an appropriate uh, metaphor here would be erecting a cordon sanitaire around what it perceives as correct ideas. It's almost like quarantining, right? And refusing to think of the terrain as capable of development. It's always this going back as if, uh, as if it's not scientific, as if it's not open to the future, right? This idea that, you know, it's an almost like this enclosure that happens, if we're using that metaphor of terrain, it's like an enclosure, a boundary, all that stuff, an enclosure of thought, you know? Uh, so a philosophical intervention should reveal this kind of thinking um, as opposed to what, uh, you know, as, should reveal this kind of thinking as a thinking that's opposed to what historical materialism is. And, you know, historical materialism is a science that's open to the future, right? And we need to, like, challenge this kind of thinking this backwards. But again, you know, this is a larger question. I think I framed it, uh, again, as I, I noted above, I, I said I framed it somewhat inaccurately. And I mentioned that, you know, it was better framed in thinking about dogmatism and eclect eclecticism being in dialectical tension, right? And both being types of revisionism. Um, and, yeah, and again, that would have been in this book that could have been out by now, if not for the pandemic. Yeah, I was going to follow up with that. You mentioned on your interview with Red Menace podcast with Allison and Brett, which if you're listening and you haven't listened to that interview yet, definitely check that out. It's a wonderful interview. You mentioned you had a new book coming up. If you could just talk about that a little bit. It's called Critique of Maoist Reason. Um, it doesn't, you know, critique in the old sense. It's obviously not a criticism of Maoism altogether. It's a very fully Maoist book. And it's definitely a joke with all the different types. You get this, like, you know, critique of pure reason, critique of, you know, um, critique of pure reason, critique of black reason, which was by Mbembe wrote that, uh, you know, critique of post-colonial reason by Spivak. There's all these different... There's so many critique of this reason since Kant, right? So I was, I, I thought it was a joke to make um, philosophy in joke, um, following the joke about the the, the prolegomena, <laughs> called the communist necessity. But really, what it's about on a small is it's uh, you know it's about looking at kind of the way that we need to really think uh, Maoist uh, Maoist thought um, Maoism like think Maoism um, consistently. And, you know, it kind of charts uh, a number of the different divisions within the Maoist camp and the way to think through them and, you know, steering free from dogmatism and eclecticism and things like that. Uh, that's pretty much it. All right. That wraps up my interview with Jay Mufuad Paul. As I said beforehand, always such a pleasure to have him on. Again, if you want to purchase his book, Demarcation and Demystification, Philosophy and Its Limits, there is a link in the show notes to do so, and I can't recommend it enough. So until next episode, Red Salute.